Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Greg Nehemiah to the show. Dr. Nehemiah is Professor Emeritus in the Department of Psychology at University of Florida, where he served as Director of Training and Graduate Coordinator of the APA-approved Doctoral Training Program in Counseling Psychology, and has taught courses in the DSM, the ICD, and Psychopathology. A fellow of the American Psychological Association, Dr. Nehemiah is also a recipient of its award for outstanding contributions to career and personality research. Dr. Nehemiah currently serves as the Director of the Offices of Continuing Education in Psychology, the Center for Learning and Career Development, and the Center for Interprofessional Training and Education at the American Psychological Association in Washington, D.C. Today, we will learn more about his academic and professional journey, more about his various roles in the APA, and hear his advice to those interested in the field of psychology. Dr. Nehemiah, welcome to our podcast. Glad to be here. Well, I'm glad that you took the time out of your schedule to be on our show. I appreciate any advice that you may give. You've had a variety of experiences in your career thus far. And first off, uh, as you probably have seen, we typically go through your academic journey first. And so I noticed that your bachelor's degree, you received your bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Florida. Can you tell us a little bit more about that journey and how you became interested in the field of psychology? Well, in a way, Brad, I'm I'm the uh, I'm a great triumph for the system of education and educators because, like so many other people, um, I was the beneficiary of an outstanding high school teacher who taught honors in psychology. And in the evening, he was also an adjunct professor in a community college. And so, for us as high school students, we were having a real life professor in high school, and we were in awe. Uh, he taught it like a very intellectually challenging course, not unlike a college course. Uh, really lit the fire under us in terms of uh, intellectual interest. So the spark for me was really a, an outstanding um, high school teacher. And uh, I decided then to go on into uh, into college at uh, university first as a speech major. Uh, I was there actually on a speech and debate scholarship, but the love of psychology, the seed had been planted and it was only a matter of time until it began to bear fruit. And I changed my major in my second year and the rest, as they say, is history. Well, speaking of history, we'll continue on. And you actually attended the University of Notre Dame for your doctorate in uh, psychology, PhD in psychology. There are many schools in Indiana that offer graduate degrees in psychology. So why did you select the University of Notre Dame? Well, I would like to say that it was an informed choice, but in, but you know, this is back when the earth first cooled. I, you know, I was looking for a doctoral program in you know, preferably in counseling psychology. And I was trying to make the discrimination being a naive undergraduate between clinical and counseling. And it seemed to me as if counseling with its sort of developmental focus, its adjustment orientation, its lifespan orientation uh, fit me better. It fit me better as a model that I could see myself practicing uh, in and living with in my professional career. And they had a doctoral program in counseling psychology. And so and I knew I wanted to go to the doctoral route at that point. I knew I wanted to do the master's in route. And they just had the program that sort of fit like a hand in glove for me. But you're right. There are a variety of outstanding universities and programs, both at the master's program 
uh, at level and at the doctoral program, uh, both in clinical and counseling psychology within the state of Indiana. Yeah, and the biggest thing that uh, a lot of uh, our guests ask is, well, you know, a lot of students are interested in the field of psychology, but they don't know which field or branch of psychology they should actually study. Do you have any thoughts on any advice that you might have or thoughts that you might have for students who are wondering, hey, the field of psychology has grown so much throughout the years, and there are so many different branches or fields within the field of psychology. How do I decide what I'm going to focus on? Well, it's a good point. It's a good question. And it is it is an embarrassment of riches, and it is a blizzard, and it's hard to uh, to sort all of that out. I mean, one way to think about it is psychology is present in just about everything. So um, that's the good news and the bad news. I mean, the bad news is you're faced with having to make some difficult decisions among a blizzard of different opportunities. The good the good news is that uh, whatever your interests are, you can attach them to uh, and draft in behind a graduate program that's likely to support that. So one way I, I tend to think of it is this. Look, Go to your undergraduate psych book. Uh, you know, there's probably 30, or 30, 35 chapters in there. And some of them, uh, you will find yourself um, yawning. Uh, you will find yourself uh, distracted. You will find yourself uh, frustrated. And others you will resonate to um, and feel drawn to and attracted to. And, and that really can be extremely informative. Do you like personality? Do you find social attractive? Do you like to help people on the clinical and counseling side? Probably about 80% of uh, students wind up going into the professional side, which is clinical counseling or school. Those are the only areas that are licensed eligible. So you can do psychology with lots of other, in lots of other ways. You can go into AI, you can do robotics, you can do cognitive, you can do developmental, you can do social, you can do experimental. But only clinical and counseling in school uh, allow you to get a license and practice and be insurance reimbursable and work within the healthcare field. So my experience is that about 80% of students wind up wanting to have at least part, if not all of their career focused on helping other people. And that really is the professional side. So there you're really looking at a master's or a doctoral level in clinical or counseling psychology. And uh, so, uh, you know, I'd let, I'd let your, your interests uh, inform the directions that, uh, that you want to take. Well, that's a very good piece of advice is, is let your interest guide you instead of, hey, figuring out the niche uh, and then trying to make yourself fit into that niche. Uh, previous guests on the podcast have utilized their degrees, their graduate degrees in psychology and in any number of ways. And I'm glad that you kind of highlighted the fact that a lot of students do look at the clinical or counseling psychology because that is something that you can fall back on and actually make a career of. Or you can extend that to different areas that you're really interested in as well. So, well, and, um, that, and that and that's worth amplifying, Brad, because in a way you can think about the graduate degree, whether it's a master's or a doctoral, as the kind of golden ticket, right? So once you gain entry into the field with that graduate degree, whether it's license eligible or not, you have the degrees of freedom to pursue your specialty interests. So maybe you want to work in the area of eating disorders. Maybe you want to work in the area of artificial intelligence. Maybe you want to work with uh, at-risk kids or families. Uh, whatever your interests are, you can develop specializations after the fact. So it's not a one and done. Your, your learning doesn't mm -hmm. stop when your degree is granted. And you have lots of degrees of freedom to pursue uh, carve out specialty interests after graduation as well. Well, thank you for highlighting that. I know that some of our, for example, you know, in the, in the old days, sports psychology was always thought of you had to deal with that athlete. 
now I, I've seen many, many people and even a few guests on the show extend it to the professional and business arena as well and, and being able to use the same type of uh, uh, learnings and education that they have applied in sports psychology to businesses and professionals and CEOs. And so that's just one off the top of my head, one example uh, that uh, you can extend whatever area or niche and you can actually create your own niche. Absolutely true. And, you know, you could nominate dozens of inst instances of exactly that. I'll, I'll give you a case in point. You can develop a um, an interest and pursue a specialty or a, a, a doctoral degree, even in personality psychology. And you may take that and move over into I.O., into industrial organizational and use your background in the assessment of personality in like personnel screening and the placement of Fortune 500 company uh, executives. So you've got a basic degree in personality psychology, but then. Uh, you you modify it and you sculpt it to fit a uh, an organizational in this case uh, uh, interest. So um, so yeah, there are a lot of degrees of freedom post graduation. Graduation, very good example. Let me extend that a little bit further for our audience. For those students who are interested in a career psychology, I know that you said kind of the golden ticket. Look at those that are you know licensable and and uh, the other thing is you can create your own niche, but. While they're in school, you know, whether we're talking about undergrad or even for you, uh, the seed was planted back in high school because you had that luxury and that opportunity to have a professor come to uh, your high school. Any other advice that you would have regarding what the most valuable skills or experiences are that students should develop during their education? Yes. And this is a really pivotal point, uh, to be honest with you, because um, there's there's the liminal space between undergraduate and graduate school, and and the the two experiences are qualitatively different. And I think it's very helpful to be thinking as an undergraduate about what it's like to be a graduate student, so that you can build the bridge from where you are to where you want to be. As an undergraduate, ninety percent of your attention is on your GPA. You're looking at what are your general ed requirements? What are your requirements for your minor and for your major? You're looking at your GPA and you're probably obsessing over the third decimal point. You know, do I have a 3.45238? Uh, so, but you're, the point is you're concentrating on your classroom experience because you want to perform well. And that's, that is a ticket and that is an important indicator of your likelihood uh, for getting into graduate school. For graduate studies, it's actually just the opposite. What happens outside the classroom is at least as important, if not more important, than what happens inside the classroom. So if you take that lesson, where if you know where you are headed to is graduate school and you apply it to undergraduate, you qualify yourself and you distinguish yourself uh, much more readily through your extracurricular uh, activities. Uh, you know, I don't mean I don't mean beer pong here. I'm really mm -hmm. referring to things like you know, taking uh, part in psychi, uh, taking leadership positions in your sorority or fraternity or other organization within the university, uh, getting involved in research groups uh, with graduate students or faculty. Um, those are the kinds of things, volunteering within the community. Those are the kind of things that really enable a graduate program to look at you and begin to squint like an impressionist painting, step back at an image of you and see the image emerge of you as a graduate student. So when they come to the point of making offers, it's much easier to make an offer to somebody who looks and feels like a graduate student because they haven't spent all and only their time in the classroom. They've spent time outside the classroom. 
So I would strongly encourage um, folks who are considering uh, advanced work in psychology to consider at the earliest opportunity becoming involved at an, in extracurricular activities. They don't even have to be directly related to psychology mm-hmm. because those skills, as you alluded to within the field, are generalizable. Leadership skills are leadership skills. Uh, people skills are people skills. Helping skills are helping skills. So uh, beginning to develop those activities and experiences and expertise outside the classroom is a huge asset for you as you move forward in relation to application to graduate study. The other thing I'd add is, you know, labs. If you have the opportunity in high school or undergraduate, go ahead and get involved in labs because that does a couple things for you. Number one, it exposes you to that opportunity and you may find out that you love it. You may find out this isn't for me, but that's part of the journey is finding out what you like and dislike, um, participating or actually attending some of the local, regional or national conventions in psychology would expose your, you to all of these different areas of study, the people that are in the field. And don't be afraid to approach them and say, hey, Dr. Nehemiah, my name is Brad Schumacher. I'm at the University of Florida. I'm really interested in what you've been researching recently. Can I talk to you for a few minutes and then um, pick their brain and, and go that route? And so that's one other thing that I'd suggest is don't be afraid to put yourself out there. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And so I'll say two things that uh, that you're sort of neuronal firing that uh, was triggered mm-hmm. by your thoughts. You know, one is if you're anticipating or, or contemplating possibly going to graduate study, there's no reason why beginning in the second week of any and every class you take in psychology, you shouldn't walk up to your professor, you know, let the ad drop. Uh, period pass. Walk up to your professor, introduce yourself and say, look, I'm thinking about graduate study in psychology. I'd like to have the opportunity to drop by your office hours sometime, talk to you about how you got where you're at, the kind of things you're doing. From that moment forward, that professor is going to think of you in different terms. He Mm -hmm. or she is going to think of you as an aspiring graduate student. That's to your advantage and to theirs. And you're absolutely right, Brad. If you line up 10 different uh, extracurricular activities and you find out that five of them uh, you thought would be exciting and they actually are extremely dull and uninteresting to you, you've learned a tremendous amount. You've saved yourself a possible investment in in a direction that might have cost you a year or two of your time. So learning what you don't like is at least as important, if not more important, than learning what you do like. And you really can – it is the case that it's kind of experience is the best teacher. You know, you get in there – you know, again, on the other hand, one swallow doesn't make this make a summer. So I would encourage you if you can do two labs or three labs rather than one lab, um, then that will give you a sense of, it, you know, am I interested in research? Is this interesting to me uh, or is it not interesting to me? You don't want to find that out during your graduate program. You want to know that in advance so that it can inform your decision making about your graduate program. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, feel free to expose yourself to things you think you'll love and you wind up not loving the things you think you won't love and you wind up loving green eggs and ham. I do not like green eggs and ham. Uh, turns out you may well like green eggs and ham once you try them. So, uh, that's part of the process of exploration that will help you winnow down your interests to those things that are going to sustain you in your graduate career and your ultimately your professional career. I like that advice because uh, green eggs and ham, different people prepare it slightly different. And so go <laughs> more than one lab because that one lab could be focused on one research area that you're not really interested in or they're doing research that uh, doesn't really interest you. But if you go to another lab, oh, my gosh, I am so turned on by this. Uh, the research is research and you still follow the same kind of research uh, uh, regime no matter what topic you're looking at 
kind of an overgeneralization there. I just heard myself because it really depends on what you're studying and what your goal is and, and how you uh, devise your research. But uh, I, I like that idea of give yourself the opportunity to go to more than one research lab and participate because that also, to be honest and, and, and transparent, doctoral degrees and getting into a doctoral program are very competitive depending on where you're going and if somebody looks at your vita your experience and you have more than one research lab experience they may ask first of all they'll be impressed with that secondly they may ask well why did you have three or four of these and you can explain i did it because of whatever reasons you have that will show them that you're more committed and you've actually experienced this and it probably is a better bet higher percentage uh, chance that you're going to stay within that graduate uh, research program. And that's where they get the funding as well. And so, you know, the other thing I've brought up, Dr. Niemeyer, is if you know you want to go for your doctorate, whether, and we'll talk about PhD versus PsyD in a, in a few minutes here, but whether or not you want to go PhD route or PsyD route, uh, if you know you want to get into a doctoral program, Many of my guests suggest go ahead and apply directly out of undergrad instead of going into the master's because uh, the chances of getting funding at the doctoral level are much higher than getting funding at the master's uh, level. Any thoughts on that? Well, it's absolutely true. Uh, I mean, there's a fair amount of variability, but at one generalization certainly is that uh, because doctoral programs are located in research institutions that generate grant dollars, they hire people on research assistants and they hire teaching assistants. So oftentimes they have much, much uh, greater funding uh, opportunity um, than, uh, than master's programs uh, do. The flip side of that that's also worth consideration is that a doctoral program is going to take you uh, as little as four, but not unlikely five or six years. A master's program almost assuredly is going to take you two years. So you also want to be savvy in relation to um, the amount of time it takes to get you into the workplace and mm -hmm. if it's a four-year difference and your starting salary is, let's say, I don't know, $70,000 a year, 7, 14, 21, 28, you're, you're nearly $300,000 uh, in the hole by going into the doctoral program over the master's program. And you, of course, will never recover that uh, difference in real dollar terms across the course of your life. So you, ha you have to sort of think about, um, you know, what are your goals, what are your objectives, and, um, and, and money is a piece of it, but it's not the only piece. The, the mm -hmm. bigger reason to pursue a master's versus a doctoral probably is not a financial one. Uh, but you do want to think through the financial, the financial pieces. And even within doctoral programs, there's a huge variability with PsyD programs, of course, not typically providing the same level of funding support mm -hmm. that a doctoral program would simply because they're more professionally oriented and oftentimes are located in freestanding uh, professional schools that don't have grant support in the way that a major, you know, research one kind of university might. So you, in every case, you want to check out what are my options for, for financial aid, for a waiver of my tuition and, uh, and or research or uh, teaching assistantships. The other thing that uh, spurred when you were talking spurred my memory is don't be afraid to talk to people who only have their uh, master's degree and are out in the field as well talk to them as well as those who are in the academic world and those that are outside of the academic world with their PhD, PsyD, or just master's, because then you'll get a better understanding of their journey and yours may be different, but it just gives you more information. So you have an, you can make an informed decision basically. Well, uh, and that's, 
That's right. And okay. that, that is that is the key. I mean, it reminds me of you know, sort of the uh, Cheshire Cat in, in, uh, in Lewis Carroll's uh, Alice in Wonderland when Alice mm-hmm. falls through the looking glass and she's all discombobulated, ver- psychological vertigo and anxious. And she sees the Cheshire Cat there in the bow of the tree and she says, which way should I go from here, please? And he looked at her and he said, well, that depends a great deal on where you want to get to. And it's mm-hmm. exactly the same thing in relation to master's and doctoral programs. Uh, there's really no sense in... Uh, pursuing something that winds up being a destination that's not interesting to you. Uh, mm-hmm. So um, for some people, it's absolutely a terminal master's degree that gives them everything they want and nothing they don't want. Uh, and for some people, they would be uh, unhappy stopping at the master's level because what they want to do, uh, research, uh, university position, research position, uh, absolutely requires that expert testimony in a courtroom context, a forensics context. Uh, so it absolutely requires that doctoral program. So you want to be sure that um, that you are pursuing the degree that best fits your goals and objectives, and those vary by person. Mm-hmm. And depending on the graduate program that you're interested in, some of them actually uh, look favorably toward people who take a break between their master's and their PhD to get out and, and get more real-life experience because then you're returning and you're showing them, hey, I've I've experienced this research. I've I've uh, done more research, and this is what I really want to do. It shows them that you're more committed, and you've actually done, um, you know, kind of the real life experience portion of it uh, instead of jumping right from your master's to your PhD or your PsyD. So. Uh, you could go any number of ways, and we're probably confusing our audience even more than we we want. But we want to emphasize the fact that do your research, get yourself informed, educate yourself, and don't be afraid to talk people uh, to people who are in the fields that you're interested in. That's kind of the high level summary, I'd say. I'd say that's right. I'd say that's spot on. Okay. So let's return for a second, because a lot of people think about, well, how do I even begin the process related to searching for graduate schools and programs? So in hindsight for you, I know things have changed tremendously between when you were uh, searching for graduate schools versus now all of the technology that's available for people. But I guess the way that I'd, I'd pose this question is when students or uh, other people come up to you and say, hey, what are the best ways for me to kind of search for graduate schools and programs? And um, what would your answer be? Any suggestions or advice for students who are looking for graduate schools and programs? What would you say? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so, I, you know, I tend to be uh, relatively systematic when it comes to looking. So I, I think there's an advantage to asking yourself some fundamental questions. So if you know what you want to be doing, that. The, the goal is to try to winnow down the blizzard of different, uh, the alphabetical soup of, of degrees. You, you know, you've got every, you imagine we've got PsyD, PhD, you've got uh, people get licenses and LCSWs or LPCs, and then you've got MSWs and uh, social work and uh, marriage and family therapy and Psy, you know, PsyD, PhD. Uh, it goes on and on and on. So a couple fundamental um, uh, lines that sort of cleave the field. Do I want to be doing research? Do I want primarily a research career? Do I want primarily a professional uh, uh, degree that would enable me to practice? You want to go the professional degree, whichever one you choose to go, you've automatically reduced the number, the field of graduate choices by 50%. Uh, so if you know you either want exclusively to do professional practice or you want to retain 
the option of doing professional practice, then you're over in um, you're over in a master's in clinical counseling uh, or mental health counseling uh, or a doctoral program, PhD or PsyD. Uh, from there, I think the um, you know making the discri- discrimination between do I want to do a um, you know a, uh, a, a something that would lead to a doctoral degree or something that's a master's degree? If I know I want to do exclusively or primarily pra- primarily practice, I don't want to do research. I don't want to work in a university. I don't want to work in a university counseling center. I don't want to do uh, expert testimony. I'm, I'm I really want to be a frontline mental health worker. To be honest with you, the advantages of pursuing anything more than a master's are really diminished, tremendously diminished. And weighing against that is the additional. F- you know, three, four, five years it would take to to get the doctoral degree. So you're located comfortably then in a master's, uh, a terminal master's degree. Um, if, on the other hand, you know that you may want to be not just the frontline service provider, but potentially the clinical director or the the uh, director of the hospital unit, or you want to go into a university position, or you 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 know want to become a training director or a professor, then you know you're in the doctoral route. Uh, there are a couple of resources that I think are tremendously helpful. If you know you want to go the doctoral route in psychology, there's a fantastic book, uh, John Norcross, Tom Sayet, some other people put it out. It's a Guilford title called uh, Insider's Guide to uh, Doctoral Programs in Counseling and Clinical Psychology. And it contains absolutely every clinical and counseling psych, PhD, and PsyD program in the country. And I love two things about that book. One is in the back, it has an index and it, it gives you information um, on specialty areas of training in every program. So if you knew you wanted to do something in forensics, you knew you were interested in work with kids, you knew you were interested in eating disorders, you can actually go to the back of that book and look up all the programs that offer training in those areas. That's a huge advantage, saves you a ton of time. Uh, the other thing I like about it is it gives a continuum for every single program that it covers uh, on a program the, the extent to which a program is professionally oriented or scientific, scientifically oriented, research oriented, you may want a basic science practice program that's a balanced and it rates it on a seven point scale. Uh, you may want something that's more practice oriented, more professionally oriented. So then you'd want a program that's sort of like a one or a two, maybe a three. Maybe you want something that's more of a science and research side. Then you want a program that's more of a five or six or seven. So you can get two really, really, really useful pieces of information that can winnow your field down to a dozen or two dozen programs, boom, in an hour period of time. That's hugely advantageous. Now, the other thing, once you decide on the kind of degree you want, I strongly encourage you to go to the internet and go ahead and Google best LMHC programs, best PhD programs in counseling psych, best programs in clinical psychology, whatever the program is that you want to pursue, and look at those ratings and evaluate them with a grain of salt. Because the best program in clinical psychology, yes, it may be it may be uh, the Stanford program, it may be the Notre Dame program, it may be the University of Maryland program, but the best program in truth, PhD program, say in counseling psychology, uh, is the best program for you. It's not necessarily the overall best program. It's the best program that fits your interests best. I had a student come to me last year who was interested in bi- bilingual training in psychotherapy. Spanish and wanted to be thoroughgoing training, not only linguistically, but also culturally in Spanish and English and come out and be able to do therapy in both areas. Well, it turns out that the particular program that does that, which is Our Lady of the Lake in San Antonio, Texas, is an extremely small, it's the only doctoral program in the entire university. It would rank 
I'm just being frank, it would rank relatively low on the 70-some APA-approved counseling psychology programs. It's a very strong program. It's a good program. They're fantastic faculty, but it wouldn't rise to the top 10. It wouldn't rise to the top quartile. But for a person who had that interest, that's definitely the number one program. Mm -hmm. So you want to look at those rankings, but you want to look at those rankings in relation to your interests so they can give you broad information about ones you want to look more closely at. And then you start to make the determination about which ones best fit your interests. And what I do, I sit down and I make a grid and I put all the universities I'm possibly considering, 10 of them, 20 of them, 30 of them across the top. And down the side, I put all the dimensions that are relevant to me. I need funding. I want some marriage and family experience. I want to be able to work with eating disorders. I want to be able to research something on population health or whatever it is, all the things that I'm interested in doing. And then I, as I explore those study, those programs online, I just make tick marks and I see which programs offer each of the experiences or elements that are important to me. And at the end of the day, it becomes really clear. You've got a blank set of columns on one university. You've got a fully flush set of columns on another. It's beginning to clarify itself. And you're winning yourself down to sort of your top 10, the ones that best fit your needs. And the ones that best fit your needs are probably also, not coincidentally, the ones that you are best prepared to do well in relation to gaining admission to, because you've probably developed experience and expertise in ways that are consistent with what that program's interests are. And that's really what programs are looking for. They're looking for a goodness of fit. They're not just looking for the highest GPA or the highest mm -hmm. GRE. They're looking for the goodness of fit between what you want to do, what you bring to the program, and what they have to offer. You could be an outstanding student, and what you, but yet what you want, they don't offer. And so you're not a great student for them, even though you're a great student overall. So that goodness of fit cuts both ways, uh, the fit between you and the program and the program and you. Mm -hmm. Very good advice. The other line item that I know that some of our previous guests have highlighted is go ahead and add another line item about um, the professors, investigators uh, that are at each of the institutions, are they known in their field? And not only are they known, uh, are they willing and accepting new graduate students? And then secondly, are they going to have enough time to spend with you? You can go to the top tier. It's a great fit, a goodness of fit, as you said, for you and for them. But if uh, the one or two professors that are known in their field already have enough graduate students and they don't have enough time to work with you, maybe that isn't the best fit for you. Because if you want to truly learn from them and their research area, you need to be able to clear and make sure that they are going to be able to work with you and accepting graduate students as well. Any Any thoughts on that? That is such a good idea. That is such a good idea. Look, here's what I tell students. Um, when you're reading through your undergraduate textbook, right, uh, all the references, like the, a, a textbook is a secondary resource, right? So what they do is they take all the primary research, they integrate it in, they tell a story, and that's what you're reading. But everything you're reading is based on research, published work. And all of that work is in at the back of each chapter, and it contains the references that the author is using. You, you should do, if you're thinking about doctoral program, particularly in psychology, uh, but any graduate program, really, what you need to be doing is spending some time in those references at the back of each of those chapters, whether it's a social psych text or a clinical or a abnormal or intro, because what you'll find is the field of psychology is actually quite small. You will see the names recur again and again and again. 
Um, and uh, because those are the top feeders in any field. And guess what? The vast majority of those people are still living and they are working somewhere and they are oftentimes taking students. So you want to develop an apperceptive awareness of who are the names that continue to recur in your field. You're interested in eating disorders. Well, I guarantee you there are 10 people whose names are going to have to crop up all the time. And probably eight of them are out there taking students in a given time. So then it, then I suggest, and this is after you get winnowed down to your sort of top 15 or 20 programs, then you do uh, then you do the careful work of what I call the three-touch rule. Uh, number one is you, you, you look at those as you're going through your top 10 universities, you look at the faculty, and you identify one or two pieces of research from each of them. Those that make you yawn, those that make you sneeze, those that make you nauseous, those that make you distracted and bored, you just move on. But you find those faculty whose interests match your own. You go, oh, wow, that is pretty interesting. And for those faculty at each of the universities you've identified as your top group, drop them an email and say, hey, this is Greg Niemeyer. Uh, I saw your article on, um, you know, ego identity development and eating disorders. Uh, I read it with great interest. And I, I um, just wondering if you have any additional uh, work in that area uh, that hasn't yet come out. Well, it's a great question, but you already know the answer to it because the uh, latency to publication for a research article is two to three years. So by the, from the time somebody comes up with an idea to the time it reaches a pr the print is, is going to be a two or three year period of time. So you know they've done something else in the interim. It's their area of interest. So they write back and they go, oh, thank you very much. That's very, I appreciate that. Here's a draft. Please don't quote it, uh, but it's a recent piece we've done. Okay, so you've had touch one. Okay, now they know the name Greg Niemeyer. Touch two is Thanks so much. I look forward to reading this with great interest. Touch three is you write back. Oh, I've read that draft that you sent to me. I really appreciate it. I, in the in the discussion section, I noticed you suggested three ideas for future research. I'm wondering about this. I'm wondering about whether you've done any of those things. They write back, well, we're doing that now, or now we're about interested in doing that. And then you write back and you say, you know, I'm considering graduate study in psychology. And uh, I can't help but wonder whether or not you might be interested in taking a student moving forward. When they go to review the pile of 50 or 100 or 200 applicants, they're not reviewing you then, then as applicant 24618. They're reviewing you as Greg Niemeyer. They go, oh, this is Greg Niemeyer, the guy I've been talking with. Mm -hmm. So they look at you in an entirely different way as an interested human who has done what a graduate student must do. A graduate student, mm -hmm. they distinguish themselves by their initiative. And mm -hmm. you have taken the initiative to marry your interests to theirs. So when they are then trying to decide among the five people they want to bring in to uh, apprentice to them, you enjoy pride of place because you already have a relationship with them and you've demonstrated the goodness of between their interests and yours. So you know, that's, that's really a good way to, to winnow the field down and get a sense so that you're not, when you go to your graduate program, you've got somebody to work with and, and, mm -hmm. and you're not blind. You're not randomly matched with somebody. So it's not only to enhance your chances of gaining admission, but to enhance your success because ultimately graduate training is an apprenticeship training and the relational match is a key piece to the success uh, of the overall enterprise. Very good reminder and piece of advice. I'd also add one other thing, that third crucial touch point. Just don't say, I read it. You have to show that you read it by 
referencing something or trying to extend it or my thoughts on this are this have you considered doing this because it shows them that you've read it i remember having students come up to me and say hey brad i read your uh, material on this uh and i said great what'd you think i mean that's the natural response is great sure. okay and so be sure that you follow up with that but i i love that uh three touch point uh idea and you're exactly right you stand out as a person instead of a number when they start looking at all those applicants so yep the other thing that i wanted to continue to kind of transition from going from your academic journey to your professional journey what did you do immediately after receiving your doctorate in psychology um, well, I did. I, I knew I wanted to become an academic. That was clear to me. So I, you know, I applied to uh, graduate programs and uh, to um, faculty positions at, at universities. And I took a my first academic job was at University of Florida. And uncommonly, I stayed there my entire career. You know, I had uh, I had opportunities to go elsewhere throughout. But, um, you know, I was warned early on that, um, you know, all pastures are not uh, greener just because they're on the other side of the fence. So, uh, so I did wind up uh, staying there my whole career and it was actually at my undergraduate alma mater. So, um, so for me, I developed kind of focus and pretty, it was pretty clear to me that I wanted to become an academic uh, from the get go, but I always maintained a, a clinical practice on the side. And I always regarded that as a, a key ingredient to be able to, you know, bring the clinic into the classroom and the classroom into the clinic. Mm-hmm. So if you recall, think back when you did apply to universities after you received your doctorate. Did you apply to other universities? And if so, why did you choose University of Florida? Oh, yeah. No, no. I applied. Uh, you, you know, it was, uh, you know, uh, desperation is a mother invention. I, I applied to every position that was out there uh, when I graduated in counseling psychology. I remember I applied it and I I. I think I got offers at every place I applied. Texas Tech, uh, uh, Carbondale, SIU, Florida, um, two positions at Florida. Uh, but, you know, it, it again, it's kind of like a recreation of the goodness of fit thing. I mean, I, I looked at the faculty who were at the various places. I looked at the resources that were available. I looked at the role that I could place, and I wanted to be at a place where – I would be able to make a meaningful contribution where I could see that I would fit and uh, and I would be valued. There'd be a place for me, um, and that I could imagine people working with because as an as a uh, you know as a junior faculty as an untenured assistant uh, professor, you know it's important that you have strong relationships with senior faculty and the capacity. I could see one or two people at least that I could imagine publishing and co-authoring with. That was an important ingredient. Uh, and then, and then I won't lie. I didn't want to be in cold weather. <laughs> and that's the other thing is I, I you know, I, I also could see it as a place. I didn't see it as a stepping stone that it would be for two or three years. I imagined it would be for uh, some period of time, if not, you know, ultimately my entire career. So I wanted to be a place that I knew I would enjoy living. And uh, for me, you know, Florida and warm weather was a, was a key factor in that. So Again, you look around and boy, I'll tell you, just like in graduate school or graduate study um, uh, applications, you know, all the glitters is not gold. The closer you look, uh, the clearer things get. And there's a huge advantage, just like applying to and interviewing for multiple graduate programs. You learn through that process of application things that do fit and don't fit. And uh, same thing with internship and same thing with with, um, you know, applications for faculty positions. Uh, places that would look good on paper, you'd go there and you'd talk to people and 
you know, the, you, you, you know, in a couple day visit, you can sort out, um, you know, some challenges, people who they didn't have resources, they were overtaxed, they were tremendously stressed, they couldn't get uh, good students, uh, you know, you name it, there are a wide variety of challenges. Uh, the expectations for research publication and grant getting were, you know, severe. The tenure rate was pretty low, you know, you name it. So, uh, you know, you want to look closely and uh, and a lot of that you can only determine by talking to people um, in, uh, you know, directly. It's not it's not the kind of thing that's out there on on paper on websites. So um, so, you know, I, there's a real value in the comparison and contrasting. And not only talk to the people that they introduce you to, because they probably talk to them ahead of time saying, hey, Brad Schumacher's coming to make a visit. And uh, would you talk to him a little bit? Talk to other people as well. And don't be afraid to ask some of those hard questions, because to your point, it may look good on paper. But uh, when you talk to them behind the scenes, uh, is it going to be a good environment, a good culture for you um, and an opportunity for you to uh, receive tenure, that sort of stuff? Those are other line items that you'd create on that second spreadsheet for yep. faculty positions. And so those are the type of things. So I don't want you to downplay your career a little bit. So I'm going to highlight a couple things for our audience. You've had a long, illustrious career at the University of Florida. You have been there for almost 43, almost 44 years you are, as I said in the introduction, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Psychology at the University of Florida, where you served as Director of Training and Graduate Coordinator of the Doctoral Program, uh, Doctoral Training Programs. And you've, caught, you've taught courses on the DSM. Many of our audience members probably recognize that if you're in the field of psychology, DSM is Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But the other one that many, probably fewer of the audience have heard of is the ICD, International Classification of Diseases. And so talk to me a little bit about how is that different from the DSM and why should you be interested in the ICD? Well, the, the ICD is what uh, physicians use, and it's... Uh, it's a diagnostic, uh, you know, manual that covers everything that you can get and everything you can die from. That is morbidity and uh, mortality. The DSM is just about psychiatric disorders, not what you die from, and not other health conditions. Uh, the DSM, the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, is derivative of the ICD. It borrows the codes from the ICD and has from its inception in 1952. So it's the Adam's rib of the ICD in a very real way. So the ICD is what the physicians use, uh, and it also contains uh, psychiatric conditions. Uh, it's by far the more global document, and it operates under the auspices of the World Health Organization, which itself is responsive to um, the United Nations. So there are different nomenclatures, there are different systems, but the DSM uh, basically is a derives from and is dependent on uh, the ICD uh, that gets revised basically about every 10 years. So um, because those two manuals uh, are under a mandate to har what's called harmonize, to integrate with one another, they are not identical nomenclatures, but they do have a great deal in common. The ICD tends to be more epidemiological and uh, more statistical. The DSM is more diagnostic for actual, uh, you know, it operationalizes the criteria for uh, diagnosing the 400 and some different disorders, but the two work hand in hand. And uh, in most graduate programs, you're gonna get exposure to both now because we work in an integrated care world in which, uh, you know, the health professions across the spectrum uh, need to understand one another. And most of the healthcare uh, industry uses uh, the ICD psychology and psychiatry in the United States at least are probably more primarily dedicated to the DSM. Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to share my screen again. If you wanted to learn a little bit more about Greg Niemeyer, uh, Dr. Greg Niemeyer, um, here is your biography at the university. And, and then LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn because it talks about your experience. And one thing that I want to highlight, I'm not going to talk about all of your experiences, but one thing that I wanted to uh, highlight because I found very, uh, it was very interesting is you had 13 years at, as a clinical professor at UF Health. And I read the uh, description, you had the responsibility for training medical residents in family medicine and maintaining the clinical practice. So when I think of a psychologist, I usually don't think of training medical residents. So tell me a little bit more about your experience there and how you found the opportunity. Oh, yeah. No, no. Psychology plays a critical role in, uh, all, in all aspects of uh, healthcare delivery, including training the healthcare deliverers themselves. And so, yeah, I had an appointment for over a decade in the Department of Community Health and Family Medicine. They're training family physicians. They've got their three-year residencies. They're out of graduate. They're out of their med school, and they're now doing their residency training. And, um, you know, and of course, uh, they don't receive a great deal of, uh, you know, psychological training. So, uh you know, their, their training is primarily medical. So my goal and role was to bring them into me and do conjoint therapy, uh, the physician, me and the uh, patients, uh, and, um, and to try to expand their skill set to include the relational elements and the psychological elements uh, in very challenging circumstances. Because don't forget, the average physician, a GP, a general family, family practitioner, only has nine minutes to work with a client, right? Mm -hmm. So, and in that nine minutes, they gotta they gotta create some kind of rapport. They've gotta determine what the presenting problem is. They have to do a diagnosis. They have to come up with some kind of a treatment plan. They have to script and they have to inform the person about the scripts and the side effects. Well, that's that's a tough. That's a tough challenge. Uh, on the other hand, what I found is when I bring the docs in um, to work with me, uh, they were stunned by having access to a full human for 55 minutes. Like mm -hmm. they, they did not, they never had the luxury for the deep dive relationally and emotionally that you have in psychotherapy. So they actually were completely unprepared for it. You know, they were accustomed to just like listening to what's happening more at a technician level but not at the level of, you know, emotional and oftentimes traumatic experience. So it, it was a real eye-opener. It was eye-opener for me uh, to realize how incredibly broad their knowledge must be, but how thin the veneer of knowledge actually is because they have to cover so much territory. They have to be able to set bones and diagnose, you know, ADHD. So it's really a challenge. Uh, so it showed me the value of working conjointly psychology and physicians, medicine, hand in hand, mm -hmm. uh, because each could catch what the other didn't. So very rewarding experience. And the context in which I worked at Family Practice, Practice Medical Training Center was really, I called it the psychological mass unit because it was almost exclusively underserved, primarily African-American and Hispanic, Latino, Latino populations uh, that had no prior psychotherapy experience that were coming straight in off the street. Uh, with every manner, every kind of panoply of pathology you could possibly envision. So it was a fantastic training ground for the family physicians uh, and a deeply rewarding uh, experience from my perspective, but uh, but also, uh, you know, really underscored the challenges of the healthcare system in which we work. Psychology has a critical role to play in relation to medical uh, medicine and the broader healthcare professions key role. So very rewarding, very satisfying. And uh, those opportunities are only going to be amplified across time. I would anticipate that the uh, um, uh, 
that would even extend further, not only, you know, psychology, you know, psychologists and general practitioners, but include psychotherapists as well. And so being able to work together, wouldn't it be ideal to have Brad Schumacher have all of these medical professionals, you know, work together to help me become a better person instead of just having one person do everything. And I have a kind of a question to put you on the spot here and hopefully you can answer it. I already know, and everybody knows you only have a short period of time with your GP. And so when you go in there, is that nine or 10 minutes dictated by the hospital or university system that you're working under or your boss, or how is that described? Tell me a little bit more about that. It's dictated by two things. It's dictated by the fact that the demand always exceeds uh, the available resources. So my docs would be running six rooms simultaneously. So they'd be walking, they'd be running between six rooms, seeing six patients uh, and rounding with them. And somebody may take you 20 minutes and then somebody else three minutes. So, uh, but the average is only about nine minutes. So part of it is a time that the, the demand just exceeds the capacity. Uh, the other is it's financially driven. The truth of the matter is we're, right. we are one of the very few countries post and industrial first world countries that have a capitalistic system for healthcare. Most have a socialized medical system. Uh, and that means people make money and time is money. So there's a tremendous press. You'll see it in medicine in particular, where they're increasingly relying on what they call extenders, which is the nurse practitioners and, uh, and PAs and other people. The idea is to preserve the physician's time for those unique things that only he or she can do. And anything else that you can download, you download them to a social worker or a psychologist or a dietitian or a nurse practitioner or a PA. So the, the goal is the, the highest use of the land, trying to keep people mm-hmm. – uh, you know, to uh, to do those things that they are uniquely and distinctively qualified to do and can be reimbursed for. So, you know, we have to be candid that the healthcare system uh, is a financially driven system, and your your healthcare system, your healthcare is not independent of the of uh, finances. And you certainly know that if you've ever been in a context where you didn't have where you were uninsured. Um, and again, that kind of distinguishes us. There's really only one other post-industrial uh, nation, first world nation that has a quasi-capitalistic healthcare system. And we we share that distinction with uh, with South Africa. Uh, most other first world countries are, uh, are socialized medicine of some one form or another. And of course, there are pluses and minuses. You know, you look at the healthcare system in the UK or, or Canada or whatever, it's not as if they don't have challenges. Uh, so, um, but, uh, you know, but we have to be aware that, uh, you know, there is a huge value of working, as you're pointing out, Brad, in an integrated care context where you where you enjoy not just contact with your nine minute per visit uh, physician, but you have a healthcare team working for you mm-hmm. and they're each bringing their unique uh, perspectives and uh, and experience to bear. And so you may have whatever mitral valve prolapse and you've got a physician, you've got a pharmacologist, you've got a psychologist, you've got a social worker, you've got a dietitian, dietitian gastroenterologist. Wow. I mean, that panel is going to obviously serve you far more effectively than any one single provider. And that is the healthcare world to which we are in which we're uh, moving. So I think that's really encouraging. And psychology has a key role in relation to that. You've even seen that in some hospitals where they uh, um, pair up and have multiple doctors look at a patient's uh, charts, you know, whatever the diagnosis, and then they all work together to come back. And then you have that one person that goes back and 
and says, hey, I talked to Dr. So-and-so, so-and-so, and we talked about this. We're all in agreement that we should do this. And so that makes the patient feel better too, because not only one pair of eyes, you have multiple pair of eyes on it as well. No, that's exactly right. In a single visit, you're getting multiple, uh, you know, second and third opinions. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you work, when you get in, like in family practice where I was working, medical training uh, facility, you know, all those cases get brought into the preceptor, they get brought into a back room, and there's a discussion about them with the physicians and the psychologists and the social workers and the pharmacologists, and you come to a collective treatment plan. So you really benefit from that integrated care. You don't necessarily have access to seeing it. Uh, it's beneath the waterline, but there is that consultation that's occurring on a regular basis, which I think uh, dramatically enhances healthcare. Yes, definitely. One other aspect of your career that I wanted to bring up was for 20 years, you were a consultant at the North Florida Evaluation and Treatment Center, which is a comprehensive medium security forensics treatment facility for general psychiatric and mentally disordered sex offender populations. And the reason I'm bringing this up for those who are interested in or presented with the opportunity to work in a similar facility, what were some of the biggest challenges you experienced and had to overcome while working at the center? Well, that, that, that was tough. And it had two primary populations, as you pointed out, Brad. One is uh, not guilty by reason of insanity. That was one set of group uh, of people. Uh, and then the other was uh, mentally disordered sex offenders. And let me tell you, uh, you could, it was, we, we called it sort of the college campus um, of uh, mental disorders in some ways because it was a medium secure facility, but it looked a little bit like a college campus. You could walk down the corridors and you could point out, uh, even without tremendous, uh, you know, training and uh, psychiatric acumen, you could distinguish the not guilty by reason of insanity from the mentally disordered sex offender, like with 90% certainty, you, you, go to, you, you know, sexual predator, sexual predator, sexual predator, not guilty by reason of insanity, uh, psychotic, sexual predator. And the, and the big distinction is the psychotic people were evidently, um, well, first of all, they were more heavily medicated uh, and they were evidently and floridly psychotic. The uh, mentally disordered sex offender people were exactly like you and me exactly like you and me so mm -hmm. it was chilling to see uh that um, the 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 face of complete normality uh that confronts you but beneath that um some you know considerable perversity because you know you're looking at people who are incarcerated at that level there's it's it's the small percentage of the major offenders uh often repeat offenders so, I mean, the challenges are uh, challenges of institutionalization um, and uh, particularly of recidivism. Uh, the not guilty by reason of insanity was particularly challenging because the, the treatment is almost exclusively pharmacological um, and they're doing their time and then they're going out. And, and the, the critical thing, which is extremely challenging from anybody's uh, standpoint who works in hospitalization, inpatient facilities, these are by definition, obviously incarcerated inpatient, is the aftercare. And you let these people out and uh, and there is no treatment plan that follows them and no services that follow them. So, um, you know, as badly as you would feel for them in the context of incarceration, you recognize how vulnerable they and other people would be when they would be released is the mm -hmm. chance of them coming back in was extremely high. So that it is frustrating to uh, to be in a context where you see it's going to be a revolving door. Um, and uh, then the, the, you know, the, the sexual predator uh, piece was even more frustrating in some ways, except there you could make 
with a substantial percentage of people, they actually didn't want to reoffend. Uh, they wanted and they felt ashamed and they felt guilty and they felt bad. So you did have the op- op- opportunity to sort of find purchase into their psychology and work with them to uh, minimize the likelihood of reoffense. So that piece was you know, was rewarding and satisfying. Uh, but inpatient facilities in general, you know, they, they, they have the challenges of recidivism and, and lack of adequate aftercare programming um, and an over-reliance on psychopharmacology. So those are frustrating features of working in that context. But, the, but the, the populations are so severe, the problems are so severe that even if you make incremental gains, those are doubly reinforcing um, because, um, because otherwise, you know, you're dealing with, uh, uh, severe pathology that can have severe consequences, not only for the individual, but for the broader populace in which they live. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that summary. As I mentioned in the introduction, you are a fellow of the American Psychological Association and you received its award for outstanding contributions to career and personality research. The other thing that I dug up that was very interesting for me was you were also invited by the American Psychiatric Association to serve as one of only two psychologists uh, originally trained on the DSM-5, and you have subsequently provided hundreds of professional trainings on the DSM and ICD, both nationally and internationally. So tell us about this opportunity and that privilege. Well, I, it was a privilege. And, uh, you know, I, of course, you know, he came to me because I direct the Office of Continuing Education and Psychology at APA. And so I call it the Noah's Ark training model. You know, they brought two of every species into at San Francisco in 2013, Two, fan, two marriage and family, two social worker, two LPCs, two, two LMHCs, you know, two of everything, and then a sea of psychiatrists, of course. And, uh, you know, the task force chair and vice chair, uh, Kupfer and uh, Regeer, and all the, the whole cast of characters from the DSM were there doing the training. So it really was an opportunity to sort of see behind the curtain and be able to interact with the people uh, behind uh, the development of the DSM-5. And now, of course, what's become the DSM-5 uh, TR or text revision. So it's a huge, huge opportunity and huge privilege. But it also, you know, opens your eye to just how, um, you know, it, it is a document that is um, constructed by people. And some people regard it as voted on uh, mental illnesses. And you can see there are social and political processes that inform the uh, development and reification of psychiatric diagnoses. So, uh so it's one of those things that cut in two directions. I feel very privileged uh, to be part of that. And it is true that it uh, it spawned my unwittingly being thrust into the juggernaut of national, international trainings in DSM and DSM-5. DSM-5 and DSM-5-TR have been doing a tremendous number of those throughout the United States and also throughout uh, much of Europe. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's great to see. It's great to do. Uh, it is chilling to realize that the period of time that it takes in any aspect of medicine, psychiatry is not exempt for that, uh, to do what's called market penetration, which is to take a new idea, a newly approved drug procedure, psychodiagnostic manual, and get it to penetrate the whole market for everybody to be using it and have access to it, you know, is between seven and 11 years. So I, I, when I came out of that DSM training, I kind of thought, you know, I would do training for six months and get the psychology workforce trained up. Well, five years later, I was still getting, uh, you know, dozens of requests. Um, so it takes a long time. And uh, and that's what's happening now with the DSM 5 TR having just launched last year. People are still it's still the early adopters 
are uh, undergoing the training to learn the revisions between the previous manual and this one. Um, but uh, but it is interesting to see the evolution of the document across time and its relationship to the ICD. And of course, it's like law. It's a living document. It will continue to evolve and, and hopefully improve with each iteration. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought that up. I did dig this up off the internet. This is, in fact, about a year ago, you presented a live webinar via Zoom uh, on the difference between DSM-5 and DSM-5TR uh, as well. I'll, I'll uh, put this up once we go live as well. I assume, like you said, you you thought it was going to be six, nine months uh, training. It's just going on and on because this is now the new book that people are going to uh, be referring to. And it's, it's probably exciting to train not only in the United States, but also, as you said, in Europe and other places as well, because they view healthcare slightly different than we do, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast, some, uh, you know, um, socialized, socialized uh, healthcare versus uh, the United States and some other, probably a couple other countries as well. So uh, any, any thoughts on how do you, do you change your training depending on who the audience is? Tell me a little bit about that. Well, you do. And, you know, one of the things that happens is you realize that the, um, you know, any diagnostic manual is basically culturally encapsulated, right? It comes mm -hmm. from a culture, it comes from a place and a time and a group of people. And psychiatry, which are the proprietors of the DSM, is its own fairly closed circle. I mean, it's a relatively homogenous, largely white, middle-aged, uh, you know, North America and United States a group of people. So when you're in Zimbabwe, uh, it turns out that, you know, you never think you have a, an accent. Uh, you never think you have an accent, Brad, <laughs> in, until you go to another country. Um, I think I don't have an accent until I go to the UK and they say that I speak like I have mashed potatoes in my mouth. Well, the same is true here. You think your diagnostic manual doesn't have any cultural contingencies until you go elsewhere. And then uh, the cultural differences are basically a mirror that reflect your cultural biases back on to you. So it is really, it really is interesting to see that, uh, that there are, uh, you know, cultural entailments of the diagnostic uh, manual. It's, it's not accidental, for example, that in the culture bound syndromes in the DSM, you know, those quaint and Aboriginal uh, idioms of distress in the section three, the non officially approved part of the manual. Uh, it is interesting that uh, there are no Western disorders. They're all Eastern disorders. They're all Malaysian or Latino, Latina, as if we don't have an accent, right? So that's mm -hmm. the clearest instance in which there's a kind of cultural encapsulation or, uh, you know, cultural bias. Um, so yeah, no, it, it actually, but it actually, uh, when you are trained internationally, it, it, uh, it opens up corridors of communication around, uh, you know, what are, what, you know, what are, um, you know, what are cultural differences and what, how do the cultural idioms of distress map onto the diagnostic categories within the DSM? Mm -hmm. Um, and so it actually is a, it provides an opportunity for a broader and deeper understanding of the way in which psychiatric distress or psychological disorder manifests according to the widely variable cultures in which you operate. I mean, in many Asian contexts, for example, a lot of stress and trauma gets represented somatically, not psychologically, not emotionally, mm -hmm. but somatically through backaches and, and somatic pain. And, and for that reason, many of their treatments like acupuncture and acupressure wind up being somatic treatments. Mm -hmm. So the whole thing about psychological, you know, 
aspects is almost foreign um, when you're really dealing with chi and the physical manipulation of what's regarded as sort of metaphysical energy within the body. So it, it is a it is a kind of a cultural clash uh, and presents its own challenges, but its own opportunities for integration. So it's actually tremendous fun to do international training in the DSM. I've always said on my podcast with uh, talking to uh, people, uh, get out there and, and explore the world. If you just stay within the United States, you you have blinders on and uh, you, you have to take advantage anytime that you can travel outside the United States because it's eye opening and it lets you know uh, some of the benefits that we have here in the United States and some of the downsides as well. But it just opens up your your mind to human nature and, and uh, all the different uh, cultures that are out there. So that's my small little plug about uh, travel abroad. Uh, well, and you know, stuff. that's true because if you, there, there, I've never talked to a student, I've never had a student in my life and I've had thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of students. I've never had a student who didn't tell me the single best course they ever took in college was their overseas study course mm -hmm. because it helped them not only, I mean, help them realize they had blinders before they didn't even know they had blinders. Right. So it helped them realize they had blinders and to expand their vision. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely true. You, you uh, do yourself a tremendous favor by immersing yourself uh, interculturally. You serve as the associate executive director and director of the office of continuing education and psychology at the APA. Uh, you also had another one that was added. Let me see uh, when I was doing my research and then it popped up last night when I uh, looked at it again. You were also pro, where is it? I'm buying some time here. Oh, here it is. Uh, you also uh, with the Center for Interprofessional Training and Education at the American Psychological Association. So the reason I'm bringing that up is can you talk to us a little bit more about um, the importance of um, and, and taking the opportunity to continue your education or CEs? We talk about CEs. So could you explain the importance of uh, continuing education in psychology and how it benefits professionals in the field? Sure, absolutely. Think about it. It, it becomes really clear really quickly. If you think about your master's program takes two years, uh, your doctoral program may take an additional four years, you're going to be in practice an additional 35 years. Mm -hmm. The half-life of knowledge in psychology is between five and seven years. If you're practicing on the basis of something you learned seven, eight, nine, 10 years ago, you are a troglodyte. If you're yeah. doing psychopharmacology based on psychopharmacology from 1990 or 2000, uh, that's yesterday's news. That's ancient history. So uh, continuing education is absolutely vital. It's absolutely important just to keep uh, a pace because of just the plan that then you've got competing things. You've got uh, the increasing uh, exponential increase in the generation of new knowledge, and you've got the obsolescence of old knowledge. So uh, getting out of graduate school is just an opportunity to redouble your learning in areas of, that are of central interest to you. It's one of the things that fuels the field of specialization where people, mm -hmm. they, they begin to channelize, you know, they become interested in neuropsych or forensics or, you know, child or whatever it may be, eating disorders, uh, because the, the, the generation of knowledge uh, increases so exponentially that you can't circumnavigate new developments in any and all areas. So you wind up ratcheting down on those areas of your specialty interest or practice uh, and just try to keep it like trying to get a sip of water out of a fire hydrant in truth. So um, the field of continuing education is extremely exciting because you can never 
you can never catch up. I mean, you just, it's, it's a fevered pace to, to keep a pace of the new knowledge that's being generated. And that's within any field. But don't forget, you also have the knowledge between fields and then the interaction among fields. So, mm-hmm. for example, in my role and, uh, at the American Psych Association now in directing the Office of C in Psychology, we're also an associate member of what's called joint accreditation where uh, it's all the CE providers or accreditors for medicine, nursing, pharmacy, social work, dietitians, optometry, psychology, and all of them get together and do joint programming that's really designed to provide an integrated care approach to continued education. So it's the tagline is, is, um, is service provision, uh, you know, by the team for the team. So it's not about any one profession. It's about the collective and it's a gestalt. The, the idea is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You get three professions together. You've got more than three times the expertise because you've got the interaction between and among those professions as well. Mm-hmm. So that opens up another whole corridor of uh, continuing uh, professional development. Given the fact that we advance so fast uh, in the field, how do you stay up or how does one stay up to date with the latest research and advancements in the field of psychology? Well, it, it, it's, it's no different than, um, more than uh, life more broadly. The critical thing is you can't amass all the knowledge. They, I mean, it's, there's just more than you can deal with. The demand exceeds capacity. So, uh, and, and you see this particularly, you know, in the internet world in which we live, the critical thing becomes the curation of knowledge, not the digestion of everything and anything, but the careful and judicious selection of the uh, most uh, reputable and authoritative sources so that you're, you know, that, so that your 10 hours of CE per week or per month or whatever it is, is spent to maximum benefit. And it's not distributed amongst a bunch of, you know, junk sources because they are out there. I mean, the democratization of knowledge is a great thing on the one hand, uh, like the democratization of journalism, but it has its risks. And that is you can be wind up consuming a lot of garbage. So identifying trusted sources of information and uh, spending the majority of your time digesting information from NIH, for example, getting NIH feeds, uh, I think getting uh, information from American Psych Association that's extremely well vetted, uh, you know, identifying the trusted sources within your specialty field and ratcheting down on those. And that's mm-hmm. in truth what most people do. They look at the, they look at the, um, they go to the, the uh, you mentioned earlier, uh, they go to the conferences that uh, are most closely allied with their specialty interests. They join the divisions of their professional associations that are most closely associated with their interests. They uh, read the journals in their area of expertise. And so that's, you, you winnow down the, that, the ambient, uh, you know, noise of data out there to those channels that retain the greatest fidelity to uh, information. And, and then you struggle to keep pace. Mm-hmm. You can set up your Google alerts as well. You can look at the monitor on psychology uh, and, and look at those magazines and updates as well. So we could go on and on and spend hours talking about all the different things that you could do to stay up to date on it. But um, uh, let me ask another question. In your roles at the APA, what are some of the most pressing issues or challenges that you see are in the field of psychology and how is the APA and other organizations addressing them? Well, I think there are key, there are, um, you know, key developments. And of course, this is a case where you've got, um, 
you know, psychology doesn't doesn't operate independently of the broader uh, social political context in which it exists, right? So the evolution of social consciousness itself requires changes and places demands on the field to keep a pace. Uh, so a couple of things that I think are really uh, are happening now, obviously the move toward DEI or EDI, equity, diversity, and inclusiveness, recognizing that one model doesn't fit uh, all people in all places at all times. Uh, and we've known that for uh, in limited ways for a long time. It's becoming increasingly clear over time to uh, open up, widen the circle, and be more inclusive in relation to our understandings, both of sources of information as well as the application, the widely variable application of that information, treatment procedures, or whatever across populations. So uh, EDI is a giant movement. I think the population health movement, so that we're not just treating one person at a time in kind of a tertiary way, but we're trying to do population health, which is much more preventative. Uh, educational and preventative uh, so that we're making a broader impact in preventing the development of psychological disorder and distress rather than treating it again uh, after it comes to you full blown in, uh, you know, in a treatment context. Those are two uh, examples, but, but every single field has developments that are almost unfathomable. I mean, the area of neuropsych, for example, is, is positively astonishing what, uh, you know, what, what you can do today that you couldn't have done even five or 10 years ago. And we haven't even begun to talk about AI. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's radically reconfiguring everything. And, you know, even as we speak, we're in the process of exploring the application of AI to, to, um, to continue in education. How can we integrate it into our, into our programs uh, so that, um, you know, so that we have real time, uh, curation, digestion, and dissemination of information in a way that we couldn't do manually, but you can do almost instantly with artificial intelligence. So the the developments uh, within the field of psychology are, uh, you know, are 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 you know just, I mean, they're remarkable. And and the field is, I mean, even over the course, if you think about just the last five to ten years, the the demands and the opportunities that have arisen in relation to psychology, just in relation to key watershed moments in the evolution of social consciousness. Think about the Me Too movement. Didn't mm-hmm. exist a decade or 15 years ago. Think about um, COVID uh, and the world having gone to online everything. Uh, you know, uh, you know, those are just, uh, think about the uh, social and political uh, challenges that we've had within the last uh, six, eight years. Um, you know, those are all represent gigantic changes in our field and the field of psychology and psychiatry have to keep a pace, not only with the generation of new knowledge within each profession, but also the articulation of that knowledge in relation to the evolution of social consciousness. Mm-hmm. So it's a rapidly developing again, like trying to get a sip of water out of a fire hydrant field, but that's part of what it makes it. It's so incredibly exciting. Well, you know, one thing that comes to mind while you were talking is, since you're so involved with the APA, are there any other uh, upcoming events, conferences, or initiatives within the APA that, in the field of psychology, that students and professionals should keep an eye on? Well, there are there are always uh, developments in the field of psychology and uh, APA uh, to keep an eye on. Uh, you know, if um, if you go to the APA website, which is APA.org, and you just type in continuing education. 
you know, it'll take you to our office where we've got, you know, scores of different offerings by within the next uh, three weeks, we've got a, a, a professional development training Institute on uh, social justice and advocacy and another one uh, on, um, on uh, developing a culture of inclusiveness within private practice. We have webinar series where we'll do over a hundred webinars per year in a wide variety of areas. Delighted to have people uh, go on board, take a look at what we are offering. Uh, most of the programs are between one hour and three hours long, very accessible, uh, very engaging, highly interactive, designed to integrate the most uh, the, the, the most recent information from people who are both contributing to the scholarship in the field as well as uh, sort of premier uh, practitioners in the area. So uh, we really try to showcase the latest and greatest of what's happening in the field in order to keep people uh, current and apace in relation to knowledge developments. Uh, in the area of psychology. So that's a great place to go, I think. Uh, APA, of course, does an annual conference each year in July or August. This last one uh, just happened in uh, in Washington, D.C. The next one uh, will be, uh, you know, not coming up until next summer. But that's another great uh, source of information. And that's not just for the American Psych Association. That's true for the American Psychiatric Association, National Association of Social Workers, and other uh, major fields. Every field, every specialty, every profession is struggling to keep a pace with knowledge gains in its area. So, um, so there's a lot of information out there. It's designed to be extremely accessible. And of course, uh, both online as well as on-site training is uh, you know, customary at this at this point, almost all training are, are in hybrid in some some manner. Sure, sure. While you were talking, of course, you can go to uh, APA.org. I kind of highlighted while you were talking the Center for Learning and Career Development, and then of course uh, the Office of Continuing Education and Psychology as well. And so they they have some brochures and programs that are available uh, in continuing education because we were talking about that earlier in the program. So I'll share all of these uh, websites when we go live uh, near the end of most. Of, well, before I get to that, when you reflect on your career so far, Dr. Nehemiah, what are some experiences that stand out the most for you? Well, there are a lot of them. And, you know, ultimately what happens and, and people oftentimes, uh, you know, say this uh, sort of toward the end of the career, what do you remember uh, most? And, you know, it ultimately comes down to people. Right. So uh, sometimes it's specific cases, it's specific individuals who've been extremely rewarding to work with and you can see them having turned their lives around. That's extremely rewarding. Sometimes it's people you mentor. And um, I have a, uh, a, a colleague uh, who's a colleague now, but I actually I had her as an undergraduate senior honors thesis student back when the earth first cooled. Uh, she went on to get her doctoral degree with me. She moved from there on to academia. She's been at two different universities. And then just earlier this year, she joined me at the APA as the director of the, um, the continuing education sponsor approval office. So there is just a, a lovely example of, uh, of where apprenticeship and mentoring pays rich rewards because uh, the people you work with are going to pay forward the lessons that they've learned from you in relation to other people, which is precisely why I love doing this podcast for you with you, for example, because it's a way of, of taking uh, the experience and expertise that I've developed across time and paying it forward mm -hmm. uh, in relation to a field where hopefully it will pay dividends in relation to others and, and, and do for them what others have done for me earlier in my career. So, uh, so I think, you know, when I think about what's been most rewarding, it really, it really ultimately kind of boils down to the people 
that I've had the tremendous privilege to serve and to work with. And that's probably pretty common across the professions. Yes, yes, it is. Um, so near the end of most of our podcasts, we talk about some uh, fun questions. And so the first one I usually ask of my guest is, tell us something unique about yourself. Well, uh, you know, every person is unique, so I suppose they we all have <laughs> unique features. Uh, one thing that people probably don't uh, wouldn't uh, think of off the bat if they didn't know it is that uh, earlier in my life, I was uh, before I was a psychologist, I was a tableside flambe chef. Oh. <laughs> uh, and so uh, that would certainly be a unique uh, feature. And I was in Winter Park, Florida, and we would do all the preparations for, uh, you know, the tableside flambés, the flaming coffees, the steak Diane's, the baked Alaska's, the cherry jubilee, the bananas foster, all those things that I've learned to love. Um, and uh, and it was really good because it was generative. It was a fantastic job. But in addition to that, they took us, they took seriously providing us training in food and wine. So I was really able to learn the craft of uh, food preparation and uh, sort of a quasi chef and definitely a gourmand, if not a gourmet. So I learned to really appreciate food. So that may be a unique uh, or distinctive uh, feature of my experience people might not otherwise know about. Well, it certainly is. And I guess the follow-up question is, are you continuing to do some of those things with your wife, Edwina? Well, absolutely. And in fact, she's expecting that I'm going to make dinner for her tonight. And we okay. were just discussing exactly what I'm going to do. And because she knows my background, she holds me to a higher standard. You know, I, <laughs> like I can't just put a I can't just put a hamburger in the grill, you know. Right. So right. Uh, so absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, here, this one might be a tough question for you because it's hard to narrow this down. What is your favorite term, principle, or theory, and why? Uh, well, I, I'll tell you. Let me give you two. Uh, one is uh, one is pop, you know, uh, somewhat humorous, and and one is not. You know, what I always like the term polymorphous perverse. Polymorphous perverse. You know, I just it's got a lovely alliterative sound to it. Uh, it it's it, it's dark. Uh, you know, it's uh, quasi satanic. Uh, you know, it's obviously a derivative of Freud's sexual development field. Um, so polymorphous uh, perversity is is a term. The the other one that uh, that is not so that that's more uh, serious is the is um, you know the the fundamental attribution error. I've always remembered that that we attribute differentially situational and um and state-like characteristics if somebody performs poorly uh you know on a test uh it's because they're stupid if i perform poorly it's because you know the professor asked me bad questions a terrible professor <laughs> so uh you know so that's one of those timeless gems that the field of psychology has served up the fundamental attribution error i love it i love it do you have any other advice for those interested in the field of psychology I think the uh, the field of psychology is so vast. Uh, it's so extensive. It's so rapidly developing. You know, you, you step into the field and wherever you step into it, it's going to carry you. Uh, it's going to carry you in directions that you could hardly have imagined. You look back on where you thought you were going five years from now. It's going to be entirely different from what you had envisioned and imagined. But if it's an area that you have passion for, if it's an area that you have an interest in, uh, you're going to find tremendous reward and tremendous satisfaction uh, in relation to traveling in directions and uh, distances that you could scarcely have imagined from the horizon of your current uh, possibilities. And if you integrate two dissimilar or somewhat similar, you can actually create your own niche 
in in the field as well. And many, many people have done that. Absolutely true. Yeah, no, I mean, in fact, the field is is a case study of precisely that fields that would have been separate fields. Uh, and you see them all the time. You can even see it and go back 30 years. We used to have, uh, you know, cognitive psychology and behavioral psychology. Then you have cognitive behavioral psychology, right? So there are even some things that now seem really traditional, uh, but they were actually separate fields that got merged. And there's no magic uh, to uh, that. You can do that in relation to anything. You can uh, develop a specialty interest, as you alluded to uh, before, and take your sports psych and take it over into IO, industrial organizational context. So please don't feel like you have to be victims of your own categories within the field. The field of psychology has suffered hardening of the categories. It does have identified specializations, but a lot of the most exciting work in truth is what's happening betwixt and between those fields, which is why when it comes to getting good grant money anymore, they're looking at translational science. They're putting together research teams from different areas. They're putting the AI together with the, with the, uh, with the neuropsych people. You know, they're, they're not looking for what any one field can do. They're looking for the synergistic effects of what multiple fields can do when they uh, converge together uh, in relation to their work. So by all means, feel free to mix and match. That's how you're most likely to make a distinctive contribution. And it used to be the case back in the day that uh, academicians would work on, on their research and it would stay within the academic field. Nowadays, and, and even more so nowadays, I would imagine that you need to show that you can apply it in real life, not only just in the in the small little academic world, uh, you have to be able to apply it in real life and show that it benefits other people outside the academic world as well. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's, in, that's particularly true in the health professions, whether they're looking, looking for the translational piece, how does this uh, you know, they're not looking at just outcome, they're looking at impact. What impact does it make? How does it translate into what somebody does differently and the impact that that makes on the outcomes that you're targeting? So I, I think that is uh, absolutely true the day of, um, of course, there is still substantial basic research that isn't designed, it's designed to advance knowledge in a very fundamental way. But uh, the translational science has far greater emphasis on it today than it would have even 10 or 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Another final fun question. If you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? Well, that's a really good one. Um, I think what I would do is I would um, I would retire and I would uh, I would take up uh, I would invest all of my time and money into developing my pick pickleball skills. That's what I would do. <laughs> I, I, I would target a 5-0 ranking in pickleball. And that would be that would be my objective. That that would be my objective. <laughs> That's a fun objective, definitely. Um, Dr. Nehemiah, is there anything else that you would like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? I think we've covered uh, a vast amount of territory and terrain. I uh, anybody who's in this field, anybody who's interested in the field, I strongly encourage uh, you uh, you know taking seriously your interest and your passions and exploring them the field offers a tremendous wealth of uh, opportunities and uh, I think uh, an investment in the field is an investment in yourself and uh, and I think um, is going to offer a tremendous range of native rewards so best wishes to everybody who has an interest in and indulges that interest in the field of psychology Greg thanks again for sharing your journey and your advice with us my pleasure.
Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.